Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 24. And Heavenly Father, once again, we turn in prayer to you because we need your help. We need your Holy Spirit to take the things that we hear and help them be translated into the way we think and the way we live. And so we have carved out this time. You have our undivided attention. We pray you'd speak to us. In Jesus' name. Amen. I heard about a tombstone with a very interesting inscription on it. It read, Here lies an atheist, all dressed up, but no place to go. (laughs) That's sort of sad, isn't it? They look so nice in that casket. They're all dressed up, but they don't believe they're going to go anywhere, that life ends it all here. Because the truth of the matter is, we all will go somewhere. And we also know that God doesn't want us to perish. The Bible tells us that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The only way not to perish is to be prepared. Prepared for the future, come what may. Prepared for the coming judgment that will come upon this earth. But I've discovered most people aren't prepared by and large. I mean, think about it. We've heard that there could be an economic crisis in this country, but how many families are truly prepared if that happened? Or an illness that would hit you. You know it's a possibility, but few of us are prepared if that happened. Or if there were another terrorist attack in our community. You may remember back... In fact, I know you'll never forget the day, September 11th, 2001. In fact, venture to say you know exactly where you were when you heard the news. And you turned on the television. And then you saw not only the towers burning, but you saw as the news captured the faces of the New Yorkers looking up in horror. You remember the looks on their faces. They looked up in horror because they didn't expect what was coming. And we found out as a country where we were wholly unprepared for that. Okay, now segue to the future and imagine, and you can only imagine, the shock on people's faces as they look up and see not two towers burning, but in blazing, flaming glory, Jesus Christ coming back to judge the world. And people are not, for the most part, prepared for that inevitability. In fact, not only are they not prepared, a lot of people would openly defy God or the thought of, the possibility of, a coming judgment. Oh yeah, right. Don't want to hear it. No, the motto is, eat, drink, and party on. I even heard about a liberal church. And uh, they invited a conservative preacher to come and speak. He was to be the guest speaker, and the conservative preacher said, Well, I want you to know, if I'm going to speak, that I'm going to give a message from the Bible, because I believe in the Bible, it's inerrant, and uh, that's what it's going to be. 
the liberal church thought, look, you're just a guest speaker. You can do whatever you want. We don't care. Well, the preacher got up and spoke on temperance, abstinence from alcohol. And toward the end of his message, he said, if I had all the beer in the world, I'd throw it in the river. And he kind of liked hearing himself say that. So he worked himself up emotionally. And he said, if I had all the wine in the world, I'd dump it in the river. And he kind of liked what he heard, and he said it even further. If I had all the whiskey in the world, I'd throw it in the river. Closed his message, sat down. At which point, the song leader of that liberal church stood up with a little wry smile on his face and said to the congregation, And shall we now turn for our closing hymn to hymn 365, the hymn, Shall We Gather at the River? See, he's thinking, if you're going to dump it all in the river, guess where we're going? Eat, drink, and be merry. Now, we've studied Matthew 24, and I've thoroughly enjoyed the last several weeks. This is our 13th week in this chapter. And with all that we have read, with all that's here for the world to read, all of the detailed descriptions of the signs, the signals that are coming... Uh, the detailed events that Jesus spells out, you would think that with all of this information available that people would be ready for it, would be prepared. And here's the question. What will the spiritual, moral, and ethical condition of the world be like at the time of the coming of Christ? And furthermore, is there any other period in history that is a parallel to it or compares to it? And then, what should our attitude be? What responsibility, if any, do we have concerning these things as believers? All of these questions are answered in these verses. Verse 37 is where we begin. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating, drinking, marrying, and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken, and the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken, and the other left. Watch, therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. If I were to sum it all up, Jesus is saying, the judgment will come... And when it comes, people will be wholly unready and unsuspecting. Now, what we'd like to do this morning with you to unpack these verses is to look at it in terms of a comparison. We're going to compare an attitude that Jesus said once was in the past and will be at His coming with an action. Attitude versus action. The attitude of indifference and the actions of obedience. And it's that final one that spells out our responsibility. But let's look at the demonstration of man's indifference. Um, He mentions the flood of Noah. He mentions the ark. He mentions the flood. 
Before we jump in, just a side note. You know, just the fact that Jesus Christ mentions an ark, mentions a guy by the name of Noah as existing historically, and mentions a flood, tells me that my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, believed in them literally. He authenticates the historic worldwide flood, he authenticates an ark, and he authenticates a guy by the name of Noah. I say that because there's a lot of people who who like to sound smart, I suppose, and say, well, you know, there's certain things I believe and certain, certain things I don't. I like what Jesus had to say. All those red words are good. But I don't go for all those myths in the Bible, like Jonah and the whale or Noah and the ark. Well, then, friend, I'm here to tell you, you got a real problem with Jesus Christ. You can't take Jesus seriously, who took those things seriously, if you don't. And if you are to say, well, you know, Jesus was simply uh, speaking to an audience he knew was ignorant and superstitious. He knew they believed in it, so he was accommodating what he said to their belief system. Well, that makes Jesus a deceiver and a liar. And I don't want to follow anybody like that. So Jesus mentions Noah and the flood and the ark, and he authenticates it. Now, before we jump into the exact meaning of this attitude, I kind of want to do it by by backing up. I want to go around the block to get next door, if you will. I'd like to compare Noah's days with nowadays. That is, it's interesting that of all the examples Jesus uses to speak about the attitude that will prevail in the last days, he goes to the time of Noah. There were a lot of examples he could have used, but he chose that one. And I bring it up because at Noah's time, there was a rise in five worldwide conditions that I think we could safely say we're seeing today. And if you'd like to, you can put a marker here and go back to Genesis chapter 6 and read along, or I'll simply read the verses to you. Condition number one at the time of Noah was an increase in worldwide population. It says in Genesis chapter 6, verse 1, men began to multiply on the face of the earth. Now you may recall back in Genesis 5, there's a list of people, genealogy, genealogical records. And the lifespan of some of these characters was enormous. For instance, Adam, 930 years old when he died. Seth, 912 years old. Methuselah, 969, etc., etc. There were a couple scientists a few years ago named Dr. Whitcomb and Dr. Morris. They decided to take the genealogical records of Genesis 5 on back and figure out lifespan, uh, put in the average number of children, and come up with a population base at the time of the flood. And they wrote... At the, end, at the end of 18 generations, there would have been 774 million people. And they continue, a conservative estimate of the earth's population at the time of the flood would be 1 billion people. And could have far exceeded even that. Let me tell you why that's significant. If there were conservatively a billion people on earth at the time of the flood, it makes it significant because when Jesus spoke these words, there were barely 250 million people on earth at best. 
In fact, there wasn't another one billion people ever again until 1930. That's the first time in modern history, history we reached one billion world population. Interesting. One billion in 1930. We reached two billion in 1960. We got up to three billion in 1975. We hit the four billion mark in 1986 or 87. Five billion in 1999. Today, last time I checked, 6.6 billion people on the earth. And it's estimated by 2150 there will be 11 billion people. So when you read, men began to multiply on the face of the earth, Noah's days is a lot like nowadays. Number two, there was an increase in moral depravity. Genesis chapter 6, verses 2 and 3 tells us, The sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were beautiful. And they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days will be 120 years. Now I'm going to spare you. I'm not going to talk about who the sons of God were, who the daughters of men were, what the Nephilim were. And there's a huge debate as to what that is. And if you want to, go for it. But honestly, I don't care. Because... What I'm reading here is this. Whatever it was, it was a moral deviation from the norm. The norm being the traditional marriage that God gave to Adam and Eve and his progeny. All of that changed. That there was something that happened, some trend that caused a muddling and a confusion in these traditional roles. And people became loose and exploratory on a sexual level. So much so that God finally said, all right... I've had enough. I'm not going to always put up with this. I won't always strive with man. His days will now be 120 years. The lifespan gets shortened. After the flood, God judges because of this. Now, you've got to admit, though that is a different scenario, that's not unlike our age, right? Don't we always push the envelope morally, sexually? What we allow on television... People are always pushing for exposing more body parts. The courts are filled with cases about adultery and homosexuality and pedophilia and even bestiality as to what is morally acceptable. So much so, the chief sociologist of Harvard University noted, our society is preoccupied with sex. Would you agree with that? Why is that? I don't exactly know, but I do know that the average person viewing television in a year will see 9,230 or up around 10,000 implied or described sexual acts, 81% of which are outside the bounds of traditional marriage. Now, you can't tell me that doesn't have an effect. When you see it that much, you start thinking, well, that's just the norm. Number three, there was an increase in wickedness. Now, I know that's a general term, but I'll tell you what you're going to see here in Genesis 6, verse 5, is the Holy Spirit lets us peer into the very minds, the thought processes of people living just before the flood. Genesis 6, 5, 
Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. There's two English words in that little verse that are the same in Hebrew, different in English. Wickedness and evil. They're translated two different ways here. It's the same Hebrew word, ra. Wickedness and evil. You might translate it. I know it doesn't sound like good English, but their badness was really, really bad. Or they they went from bad to worse. Or as the Berkeley translation puts it, human wickedness was growing out of bounds on the earth. Now hold that thought, because if you read Paul's opening treatise in the book of Romans, he indicates that God, in observing humanity, when a culture gets to a point, a certain point, that God reacts to it, responds to it, begins to judge. And I bet you've heard, I've heard people say, you know what, God's going to judge America. You know what I think? He already started. Because as I read Romans, the first step of God judging isn't to send cataclysmic catastrophes. You want to know what it is? Paul tells you what it is. They became futile in their thinking. Their foolish heart was darkened. And because they didn't wish to retain God in their thinking, their knowledge... God gave them over to a debased mind. You know what the first step of God judging a culture is? Is giving them over to all they say that they want. Letting them become so immersed and preoccupied in that preoccupation of theirs that He just gives them over to a debased mind. I was reading Reader's Digest once and it had this little quip. The way many people are living today, you'd think that hell has become air-conditioned. And nobody wants to talk about that or think about the future or ponder that. It's like Jesus said, eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, life as I see fit that satisfies myself. That's the norm. That's the way it ought to be. Any thought of God, any thought of a future accountability is off the radar screen. Number four, there was an increase in violence in Noah's day. Genesis 6.11 The earth was also corrupt before God, and the earth was, notice this, filled with violence. Interesting description. If you went back a few chapters, that's Genesis 6. If you went back a few chapters, the first murder shows up. And what is that? Cain kills Abel. It's the first murder. First homicide. Same chapter, there's a guy called Lamech who kills a young man based on Cain's example. In fact, Lamech said, well, if Cain is going to be avenged sevenfold, then I'm going to be avenged seventy-sevenfold. He took that example, and it became a little more... The bad went to really bad. Here it says the earth was now filled with violence. That is, murder, homicide, the taking of life has reached epidemic proportions. Now, there's a point I want to make here. There's a downward progression. Once people turn from God, they will turn on one another. 
They make movements away from God. They rationalize their thinking about God. And so they don't look at other people as being in the image of the Creator, but just a fortuitous occurrence of accidental circumstance. And it's easy to make the step once you turn from God to turn on one another. I was speaking to a doctor this week, not because I went to a doctor for any health reasons. I was on a phone call. I serve on a committee, a board meeting of um, World Medical Mission. Most of them are doctors on this committee. And one doctor was telling us, he said, I I don't know if you guys have seen it, but I have certainly seen an increase in violence in my practice like never before. He said, it used to be in the emergency room, I saw between maybe one and two gunshot wounds per week. He said, now I see five to six per night. That's the average. Five to six per night. I mean, people are walking into schools and killing children at random, walking into malls and pulling the trigger at a group of people. Newsweek magazine calls this a rampant make-my-day ethic. And they give one of the reasons why. Our national icons tend to be men who excel at violence. Well, you remember even that movie. Go ahead. Make my day. I got to tell you, all the little boys saw that and went, Yeah, hero. Don't put up with anything. No guff. A rampant make my day ethic. Number five, there was an increase, and now I think we're going to the point here of Jesus in this chapter. There was an increase in Noah's time, Noah's days to nowadays, an increase of unheeded preaching. Unheeded preaching. That is, people didn't want to hear about God, about absolute truth, about the coming judgment. Had no time for it. Now, did you know that Noah was not only a boat builder, but a preacher? In fact, for about 120 years while he's building this boat, and by the way, he's building it inland, not even a seacoast around. He's building it inland in Iraq. And and what do you think people thought of that? I mean, it's like having a yacht factory in Gallup. (laughs) Hey, old man, what are you building? Big old boat. Yeah, I can see that. How come? Well, God talks to me. And God told me he's going to judge this world. And you got to get on this boat to be saved. How do you think people responded to that? They laughed him to scorn. They scoffed. Oh, old man, you've been out in the sun way too long. This is nuts. Well, and we know how they responded. The Bible tells us only eight people got saved. The majority of the earth was flooded. And only eight people were saved. They didn't want to hear what he had to say. Now I want you to see this. So turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 2. Keep turning right. Keep going. Several blocks. Almost to the end. 2 Peter chapter 2. I'll wait till you get there. Second Peter, written by the Apostle Peter. Follow Jesus around. You know him well. He's talking about God's judgment. He gives several examples. Look at verse 4, 2 Peter chapter 2. For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, 
and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness. That means a proclaimer, a herald, a spokesperson. He said words. Bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly. And then he'll give more examples of judgment. Look at verse 9. Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. So there's Noah building a boat for a long time, speaking to people. Go down to chapter 3, 2 Peter, same book. Verse 1, Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle in which both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water. Now that's describing the antediluvian cosmology, the vapor that hung around the earth before the rain. By which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. So, they were saying, not going to be a flood. Peter says, in the end times, scoffers are going to come and say, where's the promise of his coming? You know, my great-grandmother used to say, Jesus is coming back. He never did. Then grandma picked up the mantra, he never did. Then my mom used to say it, now you're saying it. And I'll say it again, Jesus is coming back. Okay. Well, nothing has changed. All things remain the same. Steady state theory. Uniformitarianism. These people, said Peter, forget that there was a time when God cataclysmically cataclysmically broke into human history and made a big statement of judgment. Here's the point. Just like in Noah's days, so in the last days, there will be an increase in unheeded preaching. More and more people are saying, I don't want to hear it. Even making fun, be it Saturday Night Live or David Letterman, you know, you can say anything you want to about Jesus. And you can scoff at him and scoff at Christians, and they're all nitwits. And there's an interesting little trend I'm noticing. Maybe you are as well. I keep hearing words on the news. And it's an interesting word I keep hearing a lot. Fundamentalism. And it's usually coupled with two other words. By the way, fundamentalism has never been in our culture a good word regarded as such. Because it describes a person who actually believes what their book teaches. But it's usually accompanied with radical Islamic fundamentalism. So here's the picture people are understanding. There's a whole group of people, and a lot of them around the world, they're fundamental 
in their belief of the Koran, and they're willing to live their daily lives and even die for what they believe. So what happens in that rhetoric is that you just start spinning that word enough, fundamentalism, fundamentalism, and it doesn't take a huge jump from Islamic fundamentalism to Christian fundamentalism. And the, the feeling of the world is all fundamentalists are whacked. And the only ones that will be tolerated are moderates. That is, you can believe there is a God that exists, but just don't take him too seriously. So more and more you're going to see unheeded preaching. People won't want to hear anything about truth and absolute, and certainly not about the coming judgment. Now go back to Matthew and look at two verses that are tagged on to this. He describes the attitude that happened and will prevail in the last days. Verse 40, Then two men will be in one field, out in the field. One will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken, the other left. What does that mean? Some people see the rapture there, that like Noah was taken in the ark up off the earth, so will we be taken. That is, God will be out working in the field, turn around, and his buddy, Shlomo, is gone. It could mean that. I don't tend to see it as that. I tend to see it means taken away in judgment, not taken away in the rapture. Because I'm tying the context into it. Look at verse 39. They didn't know until the flood came and took them all away. What took them away? The flood. What was that? The judgment. Verse 40. Then two will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. So either way, here's the point. And it's a good point. God always makes a difference when He judges. As Peter said, God knows how to reserve the ungodly for the day of punishment. You know, the word oops has never fallen out of God's lips. You'll never hear God go, oops, oh no, I'm judging this people, but I forgot there's a few over there that I I, I should have separated. He always makes a difference. It's throughout the Bible. Remember the hailstone storm in the book of Joshua? It says, hailstones came out of heaven and killed the enemies of Israel. They're the only ones that they struck. God was a good aim. He got just those guys. God will always be a good aim when it comes to judgment. So that's the demonstration of man's indifference. That's the attitude. Now, let's shift gears in closing to the actions. The direction for man's obedience. He says in verse 42, as if to apply it and to sum it up, Watch, therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour when you do not expect. Let me take all those verses and and give you a summary statement. You could write it down or you could just memorize it. The Bible's revelation of the world's consummation should result in godly motivation. Once again, the Bible's revelation gives you all the information you need to know. The Bible's revelation about the world's consummation, the end of the world, should inspire godly motivation. That's his point. Therefore, he uses that term. 
There's three things we ought to do to respond to this in obedience. Number one, we should be awake, aware, knowing. Number two, we should be alert. And number three, we ought to be ready. Be aware. You know, he says here, you don't know what hour your Lord is coming, verse 42, but know this. In other words, you can't put a timetable together when all of this is going to come down exactly, but I've given you enough information for you to be aware of this. That's the same thought back in verse 25. Look at it. See, I have told you beforehand. I'm making you aware. Same thought back in verse 15 at the end. Whoever reads, let him understand. So number one, we ought to be aware. There's no other group of people on the face of the earth that ought to be more aware of where we are today and what's coming up ahead than us. You know, the Bible refers to us Christians under the name of the spiritual man or the spiritual person, generically. In 1 Corinthians, Paul divides people up into natural, carnal, and spiritual. And he says something really fascinating. He says, but the spiritual man discerns all things, or judges, some translations say, or better yet, the spiritual man understands all these things. So we ought to be very aware of where we're at. I was reading this week about an eagle. You're going to like this, I think. I loved it. An eagle's eye has eight times more visual cells per cubic centimeter than a human being's. What that means is an eagle at 600 feet above the ground can spot a moving creature the size of a dime through six inches of grass. Eagle eye vision. It also means that an eagle can spot a three-inch fish jumping in a lake five miles away. I couldn't see it if it's in front of the boat half the time. (laughs) In other words, an eagle can see and is aware of more than lots of other creatures. That was Noah. There's a flood coming. Noah saw what others didn't see. Hebrews 11.7, By faith Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear and prepared an ark for the saving of his household. So number one, brother, sister, fellow believer, learn to be aware of your surroundings, aware of biblical prophecy, aware of the news. Be aware, be awake. Number two, be alert. Look at verse 42. Watch, therefore. In verse 43, if the master of the house had known, he would have watched. So we're to be prophetically aware and spiritually alert. We have too much information to be apathetic. We could never say, oh, well, he's coming, so what? In fact, I hope that you wake up in the morning and you think, This could be the day. W.G. Burns wrote, quite honestly, I don't know who W.G. Burns is. I just found this quote and it makes me sound like I know what I'm talking about. (laughs) Quoting others. 
A Christian is not likely to fall asleep in a fire or in deep waters, but he is likely to grow drowsy in the sunshine. I'm going to ask you a question. Are you looking for the coming of Christ? Are you looking for His coming for the church? Or I'll put it to you another way. Are you looking forward to it? You might say, well, really, I'm not. I don't want Jesus to come back till I get married. (laughs) Yeah, you do. I don't mean anything negative by that. But obviously you're taking it as such. Well, I don't want Jesus to come back till I finish that project. Yeah, you do. Well, I'm working on this cool house. I don't want Jesus to come back till I'm in it. Yeah, you do. Look for it. Look for Him. Looking for that glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, you know there's a difference between looking at something and looking for something. When you look at something, that's just observation. When you look for something, that's anticipation. Take a wedding. We had a wedding here Friday evening. And people came to the wedding. And people who come to weddings that are out there, that are observing it, they're looking at the wedding. But that bride... She's been looking for this day for a long time. Big difference. Alexander McLaren, one of my favorite now dead expository preachers, said the early church thought more about the coming of Jesus Christ than they did about death or even heaven. They were not looking for a cleft in the ground called the grave, but a cleavage in the sky called glory. They were not watching for the undertaker. They were looking for the upper taker. That's the way to live. That's being alert. Be aware. Be alert. Number three, be ready. Get ready. You say, well, how do you get ready for that? Number one, you get saved. If you are not saved this morning, if you have not made a personal commitment to Christ and asked Him to come in your life, you are not ready. Because it means you're going to see Him and meet Him not as King and Lord, but as Judge. You know it's sad? Really sad? The closest some people may get to heaven is this message. That's sad. It's not even a great message. That's the closest some people are going to get to heaven. Don't be like the atheists, all dressed up. No place to go, because the truth is we all go somewhere. Get saved. Get busy. If you're a Christian, most of you are, please don't be content where you're at in your Christian life. Don't plateau. Don't stop growing. Grow, Peter said, in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You remember, Jesus said, go into all nations and make what? Disciples. He didn't say converts. Getting saved is a convert. Growing in Christ afterwards is a disciple. If you're a convert, great. Now follow Him. And number three, get active. Get involved with other believers in the kingdom enterprise, and we'll talk more about that next week. I've always loved what an old Scotsman named Duncan Matheson used to pray. Many times he would be in the pulpit. And in his thick Scottish brogue, he'd say, Lord, 
stamp eternity on my eyeballs. I love that. What a grid with which to face your day, your life. Everything you look at. Think of eternity. That potential car, eternity. That potential spouse, eternity. That venture, what about eternity? That little thing I'm thinking about doing this week, eternity. Hey, I heard about a town in England, southern England. It's named Tiptoe, England. Isn't that a cool name? Where do you live? I live in Tiptoe. It got its name years ago before roads were paved and it would rain, does that a lot there, and the roads would get muddy. And people living then wore this long, cumbersome clothing. They'd have to walk through the streets on their tiptoes. I think every Christian ought to live in tiptoe, not England, in the state of living on our tiptoes, not getting flooded with the muck and indifference of this world, but living on our tiptoes in anticipation of His coming. You looking forward to it? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, what a privilege we have of gathering together with your people, singing the songs with such a wonderful worship band to lead us. Fellowship with so many wonderful believers, godly, happy men and women, great activities. Thank you for that. Thank you that we could sit under the teaching of your word as your Holy Spirit breaks the bread of life and the teachings of Jesus to our own hearts. Thank you for the last 13 weeks of being able to plow deeply through this chapter and get a full-orbed view of your plan. But now, Father, we're left with the therefore. And the therefore can never lead us to indifference or disobedience. But we pray that the information, the revelation of the Bible that tells us about the consummation of the world would lead us to a godly motivation, an obedience. We're already aware. Make us alert and ready. Because today could be the day. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.